This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's on. This afternoon, Doug Ford will visit the lieutenant governor to dissolve the legislature as the official election period begins. It comes after the budget, which is essentially a platform and weeks of multiple announcements announcing cash in all directions, at least targeting those areas where the PCs want and need to win. The opposition has also been busy making promises of their own. There are also developments in the conservative leadership race and a massive leaked story south of the border, as you just heard in Jeremy's news on uh, the Supreme Court of the United States and Roe versus Wade. And so... And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Mrs. and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the NDP. Hi everyone, so good to be with you again. Yeah, nice, nice to be here, everyone. I would like to start with an item which uh, I'm assuming is personal for Lisa. Now, the only thing that CARP liked in the PC budget was this new refundable tax credit for caregiving expenses uh, for home care, uh, and they saw it as a, a good first step. Uh, Lisa, as somebody who has likely had to incur those expenses, how do you see it? I see it as a really good step, and I'm a proud member of CARP, actually, Libby, so I, I agree with them on this point for sure. The reason why I think it's good is it being a refundable tax credit is the absolute key, which means in some cases, you know, folks don't actually make enough income so that it makes a matter. In this case, it does make a matter. It's recognizing that you're out of pocket. It, you know, there's, there's a big, um, there's something secretive within the system of caregiving that if you want to hire somebody to come in outside of home care, if you want somebody to cover for a couple hours, it does tend to be a cash business. And having people have the incentive to be able to pay uh, more than just under the table, I should say, it, I think is a, is a very, very good thing to do because that affords caregivers far more protection in employment and, and a far better place than having to work under the table. Wow, that, that introduces a whole new thing. Think about it is, it's so expensive. I mean, the refundable, it's a refundable credit of up to $1,500 uh, for spending $6,000. I mean, we have one caller into the show whose family, I mean, obviously they're well off, and they have a relative with dementia who is in uh, a home but needs also full-time care, which they pay for. And it's, he said, $200,000 a year. So, yeah. Charles, Charles, does this fifteen hundred bucks? I mean, for people who have to take this on, it, it, does that go anywhere to helping them? I mean, as you've mentioned, it's very expensive, and I'm sure it's been tough uh, on those that are caregivers. Uh, as Lisa mentioned, it's everything helps, and certainly uh, when you have the refundable tax credit, that also means that the caregiver has to declare income. And when they're doing cash, it's less uh, onerous, I guess, to, to the buyer in this case. Um, but the point is, home care is where people want. People wouldn't want to have as much support as they can. This helps. Every every little bit helps in the end. Um, but yeah, it's way more expensive than 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 what is being proposed. Uh, Howard Hampton, uh, you know, um, I've uh, in in talks with uh, pollsters and stuff. That's one thing the PCs are offering, but it doesn't seem like healthcare is their focus aside from some infrastructure projects. How do you see uh, the role of healthcare 
in their platform versus the opposition parties? I think uh, people better read the fine print very, very carefully because, uh, in, in effect, what's happening, when you factor in inflation, when you factor in the fact we have an aging population, when you factor in we have a growing population, in fact, there will be less money for health care overall. Now, the, you know, the refundable tax credit uh, may, may be popular with some folks, but when you are c- cutting, in effect, health care dollars overall, I think we're headed for trouble. I don't think it'll be very long before people see that trouble. Uh, I mean, let's just go back a few months and and think think about what we saw in long-term care. I mean, literally, there were not enough staff in long-term care to look after people. So you had to bring in the military. Now, this is not going to change that. In fact, if, if you have a growing population and an aging population and you know that the care needs are going to be heavier and you, at the same time you are, in effect, cutting health care, we're headed for trouble. Um, Charles, uh, do you think the Conservatives, are they banking that people will forget what happened in long-term care? And just last week we got these new demographic numbers on the rate of the aging of the population that a lot of people are saying, hey, this really should be a wake-up call. Um, it, it doesn't look like the alarm went off. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of opposition opposition members who are frustrated and puzzled by the fact that there's been so much hardships endured in the recent years, especially during COVID-19. I mean, Doug Ford, really, he did fail on a number of achievements, legislative achievements that he was saying he would put forward, uh, protecting citizens and shielding people and small business from the stress of economic stress and, and in some cases, their own lives. So it's a puzzlement, like why these basic areas of responsible leadership, like healthcare and education and the environment, for that matter, that is being gutted, why would you want to vote for Ford? And this is, this is an interesting question because he, he ran with no platform. Hey, no problem. Right. You know, he did, that way he doesn't have to respond. And now he has his budget out um, and they're not debating it. They're going to say, hey, it's up to the people now to decide what to do best, given what we put forward. So the issue I find that's really interesting is, you know, the left are, 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 are you know, branded as being wasteful. The NDP has published a huge 95 page platform and they unveiled pharmacare. And you talked a lot about health care, but it's not persuasive. So what is it that motivates these voters? And I guess it's how they make you feel. And and then Doug Ford is making you feel pretty good, notwithstanding the shortcomings that he's had over these past years. Uh, Lisa, how do you respond to that? I guess in my one thing that really worries me, Libby, is when politicians, and maybe it's because I'm a former politician or recovering, as you guys say, which I think is true. You all are. Um, yeah, I think it's true. I There are certain societal things that I don't think should be politicized. Long-term care for me is one of them, just because we're going to need the great ideas from the NDP, from the Greens, from progressive conservatives and the liberals to get to the right place for all of that. And I don't, I, I know that what happened during COVID in the long-term care homes was absolutely abhorrent and tragic, and we need to learn from all of that. But if we're going to use it as a political club to beat other parties over the head, you're really doing a disservice to the people who depend, care, look forward to getting long-term care. And in terms of the um, the tax credit, I just did a little bit of back-of-the-envelope math. So what the tax credit means is that you're essentially, if you use the entire $6,000, you're getting it uh, extra for free 75 hours of care for your loved one. And um, you know what? Any caregiver will take that. 75 hours? I mean... Uh, but it comes down to, and that's, you know, a respite. Once a week, you get an hour and a half. Talk to some families and see if they'd like to have that. I'm sure they would. But, I mean, my understanding is that it's usually, if you go through one of those services, it's about 25 bucks an hour for a PSW. Yeah, I was using 20 bucks an hour as, as, the, as the number when I did it on the kind of back of the envelope. So you spend $6,000, it's about 300 hours you're buying. 1,500 of that comes back to you. So you plow that back in to the to the hours that you can get and you're getting another 75 hours as a result and you would you would want that uh yeah a lot of people would really want that howard hampton the 
We just had Andrea Horvath on the show yesterday, and she was very passionate. Uh, the word is, though, that if she does not win this time, this will be her swan song. Is that what you think party members want? Um, I have I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think anybody else has any idea either. In, in politics, uh, your, your next uh, stage of your political career is always determined by how you do in the next election. I mean, you know, let's let's be clear about that. Um, you could be premier of Ontario one day, and the polls saying, "Oh, you're going to uh, win the election," uh, and then uh, five weeks later, five weeks later, you lose the election in your history. Uh, David Peterson comes to mind. So, for those who want to predict and pronounce, I've. I, you, you, you get better information from a taxi driver, <laughs> Charles. Yeah, do you, or or do you agree this is her last kick at the can? Well, I, I like the analogy of the taxi driver. I was in London, England, and there was a taxi driver that told me very clearly that Brexit was going to happen, and I was convinced at that time. How can you guys allow that to be so? He's absolutely right, and uh, and predicting the outcome of these elections is always a challenge. And uh, I, I think uh, Andrew Horvath has done her part. And, and to Lisa's point, we oftentimes find that it's a very combative situation, and she comes across as being combative, combative all the time. Um, and, and, and I think people are tired of that initiative or that be a way of being. So it's tough on her. Um, but I, I, I do believe that if she doesn't make it through this time around or if she doesn't get uh, – opposition for that matter, I, I, yeah, I think this will be her last go around. Uh, Lisa, how do you yeah. think Stephen Del Duca is is doing? Uh, he uh, promised to abolish for-profit long-term care, and yet just yesterday he's talking about a, a buck a ride, which is mm-hmm. not quite as much fun as a buck a beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. Depends on where um, where you where you live. I mean, in Milton, Ontario, buck a ride is a pretty big deal for folks who could be spending 500 bucks or $750 a month in transportation costs in total. So uh, to your first question, you know, coming from a very honest place of being a conservative where we tend to go through our leaders before we expect to go through our leaders, um, I would say that any leader in this country, honestly, should be looking at the election that they're in as their last one. They really should because people are expecting extremely, extremely fickle and impatient. And if you take um, the example as we had in the Liberals, what they went through federally with with um, Stefan Dion and then McNadiev and then finally into into Trudeau, these things are our reality. And so any leader out there uh, should be looking at this as their, their last go around and, and campaigning hard as a result. Hmm. That's um, uh, I'm I'm sure they do to a certain extent, and uh, certainly in your party there is less patience, which brings us right to guilty as charged. Guilty as charged, (laughs) which brings us right to the current leadership race. Uh, Really interesting what's going on now. There. None of them are, you know, they're they're concentrating on these live events where Pierre Polyevre seems to be really packing them in, Howard. I'm not I'm not surprised at that. I, I, as as someone who's uh, worked election campaigns in Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and several in Ontario in the last couple of years, the, the conservative base has has moved decidedly to the right. And that's where uh, he is positioned. Um, I, I, in the Saskatchewan campaign, for example, just a year ago, I was I was struck by how as soon as you got out into suburban or rural Saskatchewan, people were very much uh, fans of Donald Trump. And the more outrageous Donald Trump was, the more they seemed to like it. Um, similarly, I worked in the election campaign in Nova Scotia last in the last summer. Uh, when you're in downtown Halifax, uh, people very progressive in their views. As soon as you get out into Sackville and the rural areas just outside of Halifax, boy, uh, you could have put up Donald Trump signs and uh, had four or five in every block. 
and, and, and so my sense, in most of Canada, the conservative base has moved quite far to the right. And they are very much fans of, of, of Donald Trump. Um, they're very much fans of sort of uh, of the occupation of Ottawa that you saw. And I think uh, that's being reflected in the conservative leadership race. Lisa, do you agree with that? And, and how uh, big a part of the Conservative Party do you think the social conservatives really are? Or, do, or are they just the, the membership? The... Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think what you're also seeing is a measurement of how intense some conservatives want to see this liberal government federally removed. And that's why you're getting people to come out. They, they are just very much incentivized to come out and, and express their displeasure with the government. And they're doing it through, through a lot of cases going to these rallies that Pierre and his group are putting through, which are frankly quite impressive. Um, I would, I would submit though that it's, I wouldn't look at this as only social conservatives going to his, his rallies, I, it's mainly people who are disaffected and want change in the next general election. And they're seeing Pierre as the guy who is going to do the best against, uh, a Mr. Trudeau. But I would just, I would just remind everybody that it's not a given that Mr. Trudeau is going to be running in the next election. And as a result, uh, I'm going to be voting in the general. So I'm going to be voting in the leadership race. And I'm, I'm going to be thinking about not who can be Trudeau. I'm going to be thinking about who is going to win the hearts and votes of Canadians in general. Uh, I have to agree with you. I think that part of the Polly Ever thing is also generational. And uh, he's very smart, and he picks things that kind of um, resonate with people. Charles Sousa, the, the other end of the spectrum, Patrick Brown, he had a very interesting interview with Canadian press uh, where he said that he he's focusing on ethnic groups where he has very big ties and he says hey uh, Tamils and Muslims and Sikhs uh, have he to his words been mistreated by the conservative party and if he can sign them up he can win is that realistic I think Patrick Brown is trying to be more inclusive to possibly come up the middle in this challenge, in this race. Um, you know, Pelev is being very effective. I mean, this, this, the, any political uh, campaign is always a communications challenge. Any, every government has a communications challenge. And it's always not, it's not necessarily a rational issue. It's sometimes disseminating information, and you need to touch people's emotions. And Pierre is a great communicator. People can identify with him. He, he, he's, he comes across with big words, but he's not, not seen as being condescending. I mean, his big mantra is all about, you know, he's big on freedom, where he, you know, positions the left as being big on government. And Patrick, I think, recognizes that he's trying to take on both sides of that, that coin and say, you know what, I want to bring more people in. Everyone's part of Canada. Because Patrick is looking, to Lisa's point, the bigger question. Who's going to unite Canada afterwards? Like, we can... We can touch upon some of the, the more right wing of the, of the party, but will that transcend across Canada? And I think that's where Patrick is playing. He's trying to be a bit more to the middle to the extent that he's trying to be inclusive. Well, I, th- I think that's where he naturally is. Howard, you know, I've, I've run into a fair number of people who I would say are most definitely not conservatives, and they say, we're going we're gonna to buy memberships because we think we need of strong opposition. Mm -hmm. And they also repeat the truism. The one thing you always hear, you always read, uh, is, you know, he could win the the leadership, but he's never, never going to win, you know, the country. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I mean, do you believe those things are true? Well, I, I, I I go back to something Lisa said. The uh, once you get outside of the major urban centers, the current prime minister is not very popular. Um, when you think about working people who are now seeing the price of housing go through the roof, who when they go to the grocery store suffer a, what you would call shock at the prices, uh, when you add those things up. There's a number of Canadians who are very worried about where we're going, what's happening. Uh, 
But there's also a number of Canadians who, who see the current prime minister as basically looking after his friends, whether his friends are SNC-Lavalin or what used to be called We Charity, which I think we all reflect on now was, was Me Charity. Um, this is a government that has the reputation of basically looking after its friends and, and forgetting about everybody else. And so there, there is a lot of anger out there. I mean, the people who occupied Ottawa, some of them may have been uh, you know, copying insurrectionists from south of the border, but some were people who were genuinely upset, angry, depressed, frustrated at the loss of their jobs, loss of their income, loss of opportunity. And I, I think Lisa's right. I don't think the current prime minister will be uh, running in the next federal election. I'll be very surprised if he is. I think he's already passed his best before date. Oh, he is. Uh, but, but again, trying to predict uh, in these uncertain times. Yeah. When, and I think the next thing you have to throw into the works is when interest rates go through the roof and people start losing their homes because they can't pay their mortgages. And I think we're very close to that. Mm-hmm. That is going to add something else to the powder cake. So we are in very uncharted territory, and and uh, you know how, how all this works out. Uh, I'd be very careful about uh, putting any bets. Yeah. Uh, but you know what, Howard? That was the boldest prediction I've I've heard from you is that he's not going to be running. <laughs> and I, I'll be very surprised if he is, because I, as I say, having worked three or four elections in the last year and a half, it's something you hear on virtually every doorstep. There's, there is a great deal of, of frustration and anger with the current federal government and a perception that they're out of touch with most Canadians uh, because they are looking after their friends. Uh, and, only. and people are just sick of them. <laughs> it's been it's, three is usually the limit. Um, before we wrap things up here, just quickly, I'd like to touch on what's going on in the United States with Roe versus Wade. There was a leak of a draft uh, decision from the Supreme Court saying they wanted to overturn it. Uh, now there was just a press release just before we went to air saying it's not final and they're launching an investigation Lisa, um, you know, it, is there any danger of any kind of spillover from here? Is it is it going to energize no. those uh, the social conservative base of your party? No, uh, it may it may give uh, it may give those who who view politics through specifically that one single lens of of abortion that it may make them yearn for the United States, or it may make them say we should do that in Canada. But I just think I just think it's a very low probability of something like that um, making it through the charter, making it through uh, making it through all the provinces. I, I just really find it unlikely. Um, the only person who's going to be talking about it the most will be probably the prime minister because he'll want to see whether or not it's a scare tactic for conservative writ large. Uh, I think, though, if I could put my hat on looking at the states, I think this is really going to mess up uh, the midterms for the Republicans, and we'll see what the what the uh, impact will be. I mean, I don't know who leaked it, but I could equally see this being something that is being leaked uh, for the purposes of making the Democrats look better for the midterms coming up. Hmm. Very interesting theory. Charles, what do you think? Yeah, it is an interesting theory. I mean, the reaction has been pretty swift since mm-hmm. the leak happened. And Yesterday. It's how... Um, I think it was a leader that was saying that the decision should never have been made by the courts. It should be a political decision. Oh. And that's scary. I mean, then you're going to have, I mean, there's an outcry already. There's going to be a lack of consistency, different states deciding as how they want to proceed. It may create a lack of order. I, 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 you know what, Lisa may be right on this one. It could be a very, very much a Democratic, uh, the, the Democrats using it as a tactic to ensure and incite fear. Um, yeah. But if it is real, wow, it's, it's, it'll be a disorder in the U.S. Well, that was kind of the point of all those conservative Supreme Court nominations. I know. I know. And that's what they're, that's, I think, what Lisa's trying to suggest. They're using that as a means by which to illustrate how now Mm -hmm. uh, some of these court decisions and rights that have been entrenched will be overturned uh, by uh, by the right, in this case, Mm -hmm. by the Republican appointees. Uh, Howard, uh, any fallout here in your view? Oh, yes. 
Um, <laughs> my my first four years at university were in the United States. I'm getting a raft of emails of not just not just from women that I went to university with, but but from uh, men as well, saying, you know, this is this is to the barricades. Um, the there there is a a great disconnect I, I find between where most Americans are on this issue and and where social conservatives are on this issue in the United States. And I I think this is the one thing that may drive a lot of people who who haven't voted in the United States uh, to the polls. I think it does have the real potential to upset uh, the sort of Republican aspirations uh, in the Senate and in the House of uh, House of Representatives, um, coming as it as it does, just as the primaries are getting underway, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think uh, you know this is this is like the, the powder keg that, that if it goes off, uh, it could change the outcome of those of not only of the primaries but the outcome of, of the midterm elections uh, quite decisively. To say that uh, you know. Who leaked it? I mean, there are dozens and dozens of people, staffers in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, who work at the U.S. Supreme Court, who may have seen the decision, and and uh, someone may have said, you know what, this, this the public needs to know about this. Uh, so it'll be very, very interesting to to see uh, how this happens, and it will have repercussions in Canada. Let's let's not let's not be fooled. And I I think you know the decision by the federal Conservative Party to not permit three social conservatives to run as candidates in their federal leadership is very much a reflection of that. I don't think the conservatives want uh, abortion rights to be the number one issue over the next couple of years. And, and, and very cleverly so. We didn't get to those three disqualified. We have just a few seconds. Lisa, do you have any insight on why the three were disqualified? Because we don't really know. I don't. And, you know, I co-chaired that organization the last time. And all I would say is don't give too much credit to any ulterior motives to any organization like LEOC. Um, sometimes it has to do with minute details uh, of whether or not you had enough signatures or if you had enough of the money. So they are social conservatives. Maybe the pool wasn't big enough to get five candidates in who are socially conservative. Well, we'll remain to see. But, Libby, if I could say they have to look at the 300000 as the limit because I'm getting tired of women not being able to raise the money. Very. We're going to take that up in future. But, uh, yeah, I uh, I agree with you. There was one woman that dropped out early because she didn't get the money, Leona Anna Slave. Uh, but uh, that's a very interesting point. Uh, right now, we're out of time. Great conversation. Thank you so much, Howard Hampton, Lisa Raitt, and Charles Souza. Thanks, Libby. Good talking to you guys. Good afternoon, everyone. Yep. Okay. Uh, We are going to thank you guys. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, there are some new, very interesting, somewhat troubling cancer statistics out. Uh, I'm going to want to hear from you in my audience. You know, a lot of cancer screening and treatment was postponed because of COVID. So if you have any issues with that, please give us a shout, even though these particular numbers did not take COVID into account. So before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. That is a clip from the funeral of hockey legend Guy Lafleur, which is underway now in Montreal. And he was one of 85,100 Canadians who are expected to die of cancer this year. Like the largest percentage of them, he died of lung cancer, which continues to be the largest cause of death from cancer, followed by colorectal, 
pancreatic, and breast cancers. And as many of you know, I am an unbelievably lucky person. I am a 14-year survivor of pancreatic cancer, but limited progress in its detection and treatment are the reasons that it is the third leading cause of cancer death in Canada, even though it is only the 11th most commonly diagnosed cancer. The good news is that overall, cancer rates are declining, even though the number of cases and deaths are going up because of population growth and population aging. Now, People, uh, I know that a lot of you have probably been affected by COVID and cancer. Maybe you had screening delayed. Maybe you had procedures delayed that's not reflected in these numbers. But please feel free to call before we get to our experts. And again, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Gerald Battis, Director of the Siegel Cancer Center at Montreal's Jewish General Hospital, Dr. Anish Kirpalani, who is a staff radiologist at St. Michael's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Kirpalani uh, actually diagnosed his own mother's pancreatic cancer, and Dr. Chris Booth, medical oncologist and director of the Queen's University Cancer Research Institute. Doctors, thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Libby. Um, Hi, Dr. Battis, uh, Gerald, uh, what do you make of these numbers? Well, these are growth numbers over large populations, but I think, you know, they do speak to certain trends. In some ways, we're making tremendous progress uh, in certain kinds of cancers um, uh, as we start to focus in on understanding subgroups, subpopulations of patients, and, and specific therapies that benefit specific patients. In other words, matching the right patient to the right treatment. And that's turning out to uh, present us with overall improved uh, outcomes. Then we have two overlaying problems, and that is cancer is generally a, a disease of, of the aging. And as the census report showed us last week, we have a population that's getting older, so the cancer incidence is rising uh, because of that. So the cancer burden, as we call it, uh, increases. And then finally, uh, we do have a, a major kind of tsunami of cancer cases now presenting often with more advanced at more advanced states than we're used to as a result of the delays during the, the earlier part of the pandemic. So it's a complex picture. Dr. Booth, uh, so lung cancer continues to be the biggest cause of death from cancer. Reading this report, they said, well, we need better prevention, better smoking control. Is, is, is that the conclusion that you would draw? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would echo Dr. Battis' comments. I think there's both, uh, you know, good news and some warning signs in in the report recently published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I think, uh, you know, lung cancer and pancreas cancer are two very difficult to treat cancers. And I think um, certainly uh, in the lung cancer space, we know uh, a very effective technique to prevent lung cancer, which is uh, efforts for tobacco control. And I think that we we often lose sight of that in the discussion about cancer. We focus on expensive new therapeutics and robots and lasers. And we should probably remember that tobacco control is, you know, highly, highly effective to reduce the mortality for, for lung cancer. I, I didn't look up the smoking rates, but I thought that they had been dropping quite significantly. Am I wrong? No, they have. They have. I think, though, that we perhaps maybe become complacent. They're much lower than they used to be. I think that's why we're seeing um, lung cancer incidence mortality trends uh, improving. But I think that we can continue in 2022 to, to push harder to try to drive tobacco utilization rates even lower. Dr. Carvalani, of course, we know each other. Uh, we served together on a board of Pancreatic Cancer Canada. And uh, what, what do you think? It's, it sort of seems to be the same story year after year uh, where there isn't, there just isn't a lot of progress. And, and even as, as uh, it's gone up from the fourth largest killer of cancer to the third. Yeah, hi, it would be nice to um, speak to you again. Nice um, to talk to you. You're, you're, you're right. I mean, I think the 
you know, the message here is the incidence rates may be going down of cancer. The, you know, the burden um, is going up. And as we know, um, cancer is, you know, we, we use the word cancer, but cancers are not all the same. This is a very, you know, heterogeneous group of uh, different group of diseases. Um, and pancreas cancer is a, is a great example. Um, it, it, is, it, it is an outlier. Um, in terms of um, the improvement in mortality over over decades, uh, as some of the graphs from the CMAJ article show, the mortality levels have been fairly flat. Although there has been, there is you know a lot of hope in recent improvement in in therapies. Um, and as you say, it's gone up to the being the third highest, uh, third largest cause of death in Canada, um, higher than breast cancer and higher than prostate cancer, uh, despite it being a slightly less common incidents. Uh, it deserves tons of attention. Um, you know, there is, there is progress. Uh, we need to talk about, um, you know, um, pancreas cancer and other forms of cancer that really have lagged behind in terms of their, you know, um, improvements. Um, they need more funding. And really, I, I think one of the messages that comes across here is uh, we need to focus on new areas of, of, of partnership uh, and innovation um, in trying to solve some of these um, very burdensome problems. And, and the problem um, manifests in my day-to-day work as a radiologist with the impact on, um, on, on imaging of these patients with cancers. Um, they need uh, imaging, and, and we, have, um, you know, we have access issues and um, problems in, in, in trying to get uh, these patients through our healthcare system now in this um, pandemic or post-pandemic world uh, that uh, we're having to face. Dr. Battist, I mean, uh, one thing these stats don't have are data from Quebec, but uh, and they don't include what happened in COVID, but are you already seeing people with more advanced cancers because they missed their screening or they missed their imaging or they missed early treatment? We, we uh, well, we're we were uh, building uh, modeling uh, curves uh, like a year ago uh, that were pre- predicting an increased mortality a couple of years out as a result of the delays in screening and surgery and the initiation of systemic therapy. We already started to feel it. And uh, well, we, what we considered, you know, what we would see in the future became obvious during uh, last summer, as a matter of fact where people were just anecdotally describing to each other cases from leukemia to breast cancer to pancreas cancer, cases that were much more advanced than, than we were used to. And um, and the the models all predict that in order to deal with this, in order to uh, mitigate this increased mortality, we'd have to increase our capacity by 30%, which is really impossible. <laughs> um, not only because it's on the face of it, it's impossible, but... but, but COVID has definitely shown us that our healthcare system has limited capacity. So in order to really deal with it, we have to innovate. The same way that innovation in science has helped us uh, through the uh, pandemic, I think we have to move to innovation, more clinical trials, more support for research that's going to take us in new directions. We need to bring things like uh, next-generation sequencing, genomic sequencing to to the patient to help guide us with therapeutics and, and add to that other kinds of profiling so that it, you know, we, by the time my colleague uh, uh, is able to squeeze a patient in to do the, the imaging and diagnosis of pancreas cancer, that's really actually the story's largely written for that patient. And uh, we need to get to these things earlier, We're looking at things like liquid biopsies, looking for signs of tumor in the DNA floating around and DNA that's shed from the tumor in the blood, signs of immunoreactivity against tumors that might be an even earlier signal. We just have to be more innovative and we have to take, uh, we have to make some bigger leaps to do this differently. Because if we keep doing what we did before in the face of uh, this mammoth uh, crisis that I think we're feeling, uh, we're going to, we're not going to have very good results um, Dr. Booth, just before the pandemic, I remember seeing a couple of presentations on using virtual medicine for a part of cancer care. How much would that help? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think given the 
substantial difficulties all of us have faced, both in our professional and personal lives the last couple of years, there are a few silver linings, as we call them. And I think it's kind of forced the medical community to adopt um, virtual care, and we were probably lagging in that regard. And so I think that's um, uh, something that we can continue to refine and use in the future. I think there's no question that it uh, there's there's a role to be played for virtual care, and I think that going forward, there's certainly patients in my clinical practice that regardless of the COVID pandemic would probably be best served by having virtual care. I think the difficulty is going to be to find out uh, what's the right balance, um, which patients are best served by virtual care, and in what circumstances would a patient prefer to be in person versus done virtually. And so I think that's going to take some some um, discussions and, and research and learning from patients themselves in the coming months and years. And just to build on what Dr. Vada said, I, I think that you know, he's right. We can't continue to do things the same way we've been doing them. And I think, you know, the pandemic has been a great disruptor. And I think it gives us an opportunity to conceptualize how should we approach cancer uh, in this new world. And I think that while we will need innovation with high-tech science and novel therapeutics and assays and diagnostics, I also think we need to think about how we actually deliver models of care. And so I think we need to, to study, you know, what's the most efficient and safest way to give cancer care? How can we deliver it more effectively, closer to home for patients? How can we reduce the many uh, barriers to equitable access, the disparities in care that we see across Canada and globally? So I, I think there's some really big picture system level questions that we need to uh, address in the coming months and years. Okay, we've got to take a break. We will be back with more on this very important subject. And and people, we would like to hear from you if you've been affected by delays in cancer screening or treatment because of the pandemic or otherwise. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will be back with uh, our three oncologists when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the latest cancer statistics, which shows that overall cancer rates are declining. But the number of cases and deaths is going up because of an increase in population and the aging of the population. We also know that lung cancer continues to be the largest cause of death from cancer, and pancreatic cancer has had very little progress. And that's why it is the third leading cause, even though it is not among the very most common types of the disease. Uh, we also heard from Dr. Battist in Montreal, who thinks that uh, he, he, they'd have to staff up or increase by 30% in order to catch up to what was lost in COVID. So my next question is to Dr. Carpolani here. Here, We're in an election campaign, and we have some politicians saying, hey, we're going to build more infrastructure, more operating rooms. That's what we need to catch up. We have others saying, hey, you can't staff that without nurses. We're going to hire X numbers of more nurses. So from your point of view, what is it that we could be promised that would go the furthest to fixing this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that um, there, there certainly is. Uh, there is a need for, uh, for infrastructure across, uh, you know, the healthcare system to help with cancer patients. ORs is certainly part of that. Um, uh, MRI and CT funding um, and and infrastructure is another huge part of that, and there are many other you know uh, aspects of it. And some of this, um, you know, we we have to look at um, our overburdened hospitals and, and look at what can be done outside of hospitals uh, in in uh, you know in facilities that can complement uh, the care that we receive in hospitals and 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 do that within our healthcare system. Um, uh, speaking here for Ontario, at least. The other thing I would say um, is that, you know, um, the nursing situation, uh, of course, uh, is, is dire. Uh, and, um, and in general, the morale of healthcare workers is low, and we need to improve that. We need more people. Um, but one forgotten group uh, is, um, is the imaging technologist. Uh, and I think that 
um, that uh, sonographers and, and MRI technologists, CT technologists, X-ray technologists that do so much work in our healthcare system and imaging, uh, we are seeing a massive shortage, uh, you know, in that group as well. Um, so it's nurses, it's technologists, uh, and, and improving, uh, the, you know, the, um, the, the work situation, the funding uh, for these groups of people is going to go a long way to seeing improvements downstream in, um, in cancer outcomes uh, and, uh, and the health of, uh, of all Canadians. Um, so I think those are some of the points I would raise. Dr. Booth, given what is on offer now, uh, do, how, how are you doing in terms of catching up? Um, I think, I mean, as, <clears throat> as a chemotherapy uh, doctor and oncologist, we've been able to kind of maintain patients coming through the cancer center, you know, obviously with some disruption to the pandemic. The biggest challenge is the upstream stuff. So what we call, you know, the, 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 the huge population of undiagnosed patients with cancer that are walking around um, in every province of Canada who have not yet made their way into the system. And so those are the patients that are experiencing significant backlogs. And I think that's where we're going to have to become more innovative about how we can get those people into the system in, in a timely way. Because we know that time, um, uh, not for every cancer, but for many cancers, uh, a, a timely diagnosis and timely initiation of treatment is strongly uh, related to a patient outcome. Uh, in Montreal, Dr. Battist, uh, what do you need the most? Well, all of the, of the above. I mean, the, thing, the things that we're hearing about are, are universal needs. I think in the States... Um, you know, where, where there's more of a business model for health care, they had greater capacity, just less integration. So our, our integration helped us. Our social cohesion helped us. But in, just in terms of capacity, that, that's a problem. But again, I think we have to do things differently. We, we, you know, all of the things that human beings, that we count on human beings to do, uh, we have to go through them and see, you know, we're, we're just, you know, something I started two years ago, which is an automatic uh, uh, check-in by a patient with it, with their healthcare card to get rid of these hospital cards, and that sends a, a text me- message back to the patient to to validate their remind them of their appointment and to give them information and all of the inf- information systems that we're missing in Canada that that would make the sojourn of the patient through the system much easier can um, enhance the capacity of, and and their, their, their you know and and voice activated transcriptions of of uh, radiology reports and, and and being able to order online uh, reports and get them back uh, efficiently there are efficiencies in the system that we haven't that we went to during the pandemic in, in moments of of uh, tremendous pressure and uh, as someone said about two years ago uh, early in the pandemic and uh, he, he, he was talking about these silver linings and things that we were, the bureaucracy that we were cutting through and creation, creative ideas that we were, were coming up with to make, to, 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 to enhance efficiencies. He said he hopes that the last symptom of COVID is not amnesia, that we don't lose, lose, uh, forget the lessons learned. I, you know, even extending now, we, in our hospital, we started a, uh, a hospital at home for COVID patients that were hospitalized maybe needing a little bit of oxygen and support, physio, uh, we're able to monitor them externally and have a whole ward at home and uh, home visits, et cetera. And now we're extending that into all kinds of other other patient care. So we're extending the hospital into the home environment. I think generally we have to move out of our hospitals into the community. We have to diagnose things way before we do because, you know, our concern about a delay of two or three weeks for surgery for a cancer that's diagnosed is probably misplaced because the diagnosis the prognosis is established by the time they hit the doors of our institutions we have to move upstream get the earlier diagnosis work with the gps and the nurses out in the community to go from symptoms to diagnosis as as quickly as possible so i think we have to rethink a lot of things and we are i mean these are not idea new ideas of mine i I think but i think it, it requires a reorientation um that um uh, that has to be quite radical. Uh, Dr. Booth, um, you know, we're um, just to finish up here with something more positive. In which types of cancers do you see the most progress? Um, that's a good question, Libby. I mean, I think uh, there are some specific cancers with uh, 
molecular abnormalities for which we have seen very, very transformative gains um, to what we call precision medicine. Um, uh, the, the problem is, is unfortunately, that has not panned out to most cancers at a general level. So we've seen some transformational advances in a, a, a handful of specific molecular cancers. Um, you know, I've been treating cancer now for almost 20 years, and I focus on gastrointestinal cancer. So certainly the outcome of patients with colon cancer has improved markedly over the last 20 years within my field. Whereas, as you mentioned in your opening comments, progress in pancreas cancer has been much, much, much more difficult than colon cancer. So I think we've, uh, we've certainly had our share of successes over the last decades, but there's, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. And uh, uh, Dr. Kerplani, is, is the hope in, say, pancreatic cancer, cancer of the pancreas, is, is that in finding more subtypes and, and um, targeting it like that? Or uh, are you just waiting for a breakthrough? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, as you know, uh, screening in pancreas cancer has been, uh, a, a, you know, a big challenge and we haven't really gotten there yet. But I think there have been very significant, um, you know, areas of progress uh, in terms of um, in terms of chemotherapy regimens uh, that have at least in the last 10 years, five to 10 years started to make um, bigger inroads than the kind of things we would see 10 to 15 years ago. The advances in surgical care. Uh, for pancreas cancer have made big differences, even, um, you know, even um, moving to um, so-called neoadjuvant pathways for treating uh, patients, which is to say to give them chemotherapy up front before, um, you know, before, uh, um, before surgery and patients who are eligible for that. But there's all these other, there's many other new areas, um, you know, um, Pancreatic Cancer Canada, for example, is funding, uh, you know, areas of research in um, getting uh, additional data that we may not have gotten before through wearable technology, um, looking at real-world data, you know, just going back to partnerships and kind of to summarize what uh, some of my colleagues and I have said, I, I think we should expect, um, you know, in improving cancer care and expect from our governments um, better partnerships um, to innovate, uh, both with, re- you know, both with uh, research groups in universities that translate into companies um, collaborating with nonprofit organizations and companies who are making um, efforts to improve our healthcare system, um, and using innovative things like uh, real-world data, uh, imaging data to um, personalize uh, treatment regimens for um, for patients. I, I think we'll keep, you know, we'll keep advancing that. But we want to see uh, we want to see a concerted effort from governments to work with these kind of organizations to help Canadians. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, That's all the time we have. This has been a very important conversation. And thank you to Dr. Anish Karpalani, Dr. Chris Booth, and Dr. Gerald Battis. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.